Okay, everybody, welcome to a bonus episode of the Great Heavy Music Podcast with yours truly, Alex Peterson, and of course, the always amazing Phil Collins. But today with us, we have a special guest, <laughs> the amazing, talented, and awesome Matt Solis of Cormorant. Cormorant. Matt, help me out. How would you pronounce it? Uh, we say Cormorant. Um, I guess it really depends on <laughs> what part of the country you're from, but Cormorant, Cormorant, you know, it's, it's all the same. Okay. Awesome. And, and we are pronouncing your last name. It's Solus, right? Yeah. Awesome. Well, Matt is the lead guitarist, a vocalist and a longtime member, not necessarily a founding member. You joined in 2008 when the band was started, I think in 2007, right, Matt, tell us how you kind of got involved. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the band was started in 07 by uh, Nick Cohen, the guitar player, uh, Brennan Kunkel, the drummer, and our previous bassist and vocalist Arthur Von Nagel. <clears throat> they started as a <coughs> excuse me. They started as a trio, and um, they put out one EP, the Last Tree EP, uh, and then they were looking for another guitar player around when they finished that record. Um, and they put up a, I saw the, uh, they put up an ad on Craigslist, which I saw. And at that point I had just come out of another band that I was playing with. I was playing bass in a, in a band that I wasn't really super like stoked about. And I was just kind of looking for something new to do. So I saw that and I called, uh, Arthur and, and came down for a jam with them. And that was in 08, early 08. And, uh, yeah, I joined after a couple practices and we just got to work, uh, writing the songs that would turn into Metazoa. Did it click instantly? I mean, could you tell these guys were just, they had something because this Metazoa album came together, what sounds like incredibly fast. And for my money, it's fucking amazing. Yeah, it did. It did, uh, come together pretty fast. Uh, I, I definitely got the sense that when I first played with them, that they were, really on to something in those early days it was kind of more like a little more melodic death metal style than what we would end up becoming but there was like this kind of tinge of black metal folk stuff going on that reminded me a lot of Agaloc and I was really intrigued by that and I had some riffs that I felt could fit with that style so when I came into the band I had all these like I was like I had all these ideas and on top of that they had been working on songs so we kind of were pretty prolific right out the gate because they would show me something and I would say oh that kind of fits with this thing that I have and we would just start piecing together songs and and back in those days we we re uh, rehearsed together probably three or four times a week which is kind of a lot um, just because we're really into the new dynamic of the of this band that you know used to be a three-piece and is, was now a quartet there's a bunch of different sound avenues we could explore with that so we were just like super stoked to write music together and create these like new sounds back in those days it just kind of flowed out of us and it's funny you mentioned Agaloc without me even saying so but that's why I found you guys. If you remember the old website CD Baby, yeah, I went on. I went on CD Baby in like 2009, 2010 maybe. Typed in bands that sound like Agaloc, <laughs> and you and Cormorant Metazoa was the first one that came up. And I said, okay, I'm going to check this out. 
And as soon as I played the first two tracks, I was like, holy shit, I bought the album straight away on CD Baby. And ever since then, I've been like evangelical about that CD, trying to get people to listen to it. That's great. Yeah, Bandcamp, um, that is actually, I know exactly where that came from. Our, our buddy Greg Majewski worked, or no, a CD Baby. Sorry, you said CD Baby. Yeah, CD Baby. Our friend Greg worked there and was instrumental in kind of like, pushing us on that platform and he they did like a video for CD Baby used to do like a video series where one of their employees would recommend an album and Greg did one on Dwellings our second album he he's been a really big supporter of us for for a lot of years so that's that's cool and then Phil you had never heard of them until I presented it to you and I don't know if you had a chance to listen to our last episode where we reviewed your album uh, Matt but Phil was loving it. Phil, what what do you think about Metazoa? Yeah, um, gosh, I wasn't sure what to think. Uh, it's been a long time since I really listened to any uh, death, anything new, I should say. And I was blown away. I found it was so progressive. Um, it really went a lot of different places. It all felt really organic. And uh, it did remind me, it's funny you guys both said the Agalock, because that's it's like it's got that sorrowful, folksy kind of feel about it. Um, did you guys have, I mean... Were you influenced by Agalock or just sort of a natural inclination to play like that anyway? I mean, yeah, we were definitely influenced by Agalock, um, <clears throat> especially back in in those days. Uh, also, Opeth, oh, um, maybe like that a little uh, early era in flames at that time. Anything that. You know, it's, sorry. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I, I, I feel like there's definitely some mellow death in there, man. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, and it's funny looking back like that that record came out 10 years ago. So we were 20 in our mid 20s. Um and we've obviously progressed a lot over the years since then to the point where our stuff now doesn't sound anything like the Metazoa stuff. There might be like right. little kernels in there because it's the same musicians, but um yeah, at the time we were super influenced by Ashes Against the Grain, the Agalock record. Um, I think you can hear that a lot in Sky Burial, the song Sky Burial, actually. Um, um, but yeah, they were a big influence for sure. Any any of that like dark, folky, <clears throat> extreme metal, we, we would gravitate to a lot in those days. Awesome. What got you into metal, specifically playing metal guitar? Uh, probably Metallica, even though that's the... Uh, you know, stock answer that most people have, but it's true. I, 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 I listened to a lot of rock and roll growing up just cause my dad was really into stuff like Steely Dan and Santana and the Eagles. <clears throat> so I always knew I liked rock music. Um, and I started playing guitar like when I was 10 or 11 years old. Well, I guess the reason I started playing guitar was because of Stevie Ray Vaughan. I saw, um, a live performance he did called Live at the El Macambo. I still remember this, and it completely changed my life, blew my mind. I didn't know that the guitar could be played in, in that way because um, I was like 10 years old. I was, I was used to seeing you know guitar players soloing or whatever, but if you watch that footage of Stevie Ray Vaughan at that concert, it's like next-level stuff. Um, so... That really like spurned my love of the instrument and wanting to practice it all the time and get good. But for heavy metal, for sure Metallica, when the Black Album came out, 91 or something like that, I was eight years old, nine years old. So I remember hearing the songs, Enter Sandman and stuff on on the radio. 
And then <laughs> I went to Blockbuster Music back when that was a thing. Uh, <laughs> wow. Uh, with my mom, uh, asked her to buy me the the Black Album CD. <laughs> and I, I got to thank the the clerk at Blockbuster Music because he's, he, I went up to there to pay for the CD and he was like, he made, kind of made fun of me. He's like, ah, oh, this is, you don't want this. You got to get the, you got to get the real Metallica. So he, he upsold me and talked me into also buying Master of Puppets. Nice. <laughs> yes. And I, yeah. And I got to thank him for that because I got Black Album and Master of Puppets at the same time. So it was kind of like the groovier, like hard rock style Metallica, which was like easier on my little kid ears. But also I got Master Puppets, which is, you know, arguably one of the greatest heavy metal records ever. Um, So that really set me off. And then around that time, I was also listening to like the uh, Pantera was really big for me in like seventh grade. Um, I was into like, punk rock mostly when I was that age, like Bad Religion and Green Day and stuff. But uh, Pantera for sure broke it open. And then I just, you know, went on from there. And shout out to your mom for being willing to buy you those albums as a kid and not stand in the way. Hell yeah. Good mom there. Yeah. Nice uh, supportive role from the snobby blockbuster employee. <laughs> yeah. You know, if someone tried to do that to me today, I would probably tell them to go fuck themselves. But, but. Exactly. Yeah, whatever, guy. Just <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I would probably just have my headphones in and not be talking to him. But, but uh, no, he, he set me on the path. Uh, so thank, shout out to that dude. <laughs> That's cool. So now because you've had, you know, that, that was the kind of the beginning. And now we fast forward. You guys had Metazoa. You, you clicked right off the bat. And now 10 years later, you know, you, you have four albums in the books, but the band looks a little different and definitely sounds a little different. I don't want you to feel like you got to give us all of it because it's probably a very long story, but tell us kind of how that evolved and, and why it evolved, Matt, from the sound that Metazoa had to the sound like Diaspora has. Yeah, um, I think it's just a, it's just a, it, it happened because we grew together as musicians, I think. And, you know, as you get older, I think your tastes kind of, are refined a little bit into what you want, especially as a musician, what you want to present to people gets a little more clear as you play together more. So as the years went by, we sort of decided that the melodic death thing was a little less interesting than the black metal side of us, which is a little more, I don't want to say angry, but a little more like direct, a little more focused, a little more esoteric. It just, more exciting to us, the, uh, that type of sound. Um, so for dwellings, we kind of moved a little bit in that direction. I think actually, if you want to look for, at Metazoa as like a turning point, the song hanging gardens, I feel like was a real turning point for us because that one has like, it's 11 minutes long and it has all this like doom stuff at the end and like some black metal stuff. So that was kind of when we, we realized that that was the sound we wanted to do that song. And that jumped us off to Dwellings, which is a little more focused. Then Arthur left the band after Dwellings. Marcus came in. And at that point, it was Nick Brennan and I writing the music because Marcus was brand new. And Earth Diver is like, uh, probably our like most angry, black metal-y album that we have. Um, it just seems to be that that's what we gravitated toward over the years. I don't know if it was like getting older and getting more angry at the world or like 
for me, it's just sonically that that was more interesting than the kind of melodic um, in flamesy stuff we would do in in the early days. I still um, am very proud of Metazo and I'm glad that uh, a lot of people respond to it. But as a musician, the stuff we would end up doing is more close to what's inside of me, if that makes sense. Diaspora, particularly our, our latest record, I feel is like the culmination of what we've always wanted to sound like. We took a long time on that record, even though there are only four songs on it. It's uh, <laughs> It represents a lot of mental energy and just kind of total focus from all four of us. Uh, so I don't know, Did I? hopefully I answered that question. Sure. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, it's funny, Matt, because before we went on air, Phil and I were chatting, and, and I said to him that I get the sense that the the shift sonically got kind of angrier and heavier and darker, because in Metazoa, the, the lyrics and the vocals were very heavy and, and somewhat dark, but the music was optimistic and energetic. Whereas the music of the later albums, especially Earth Diver, and then a little more refined on Diaspora, but still very dark and just kind of foreboding, to me it all it seemed like um, the shift from youthful optimism of being in a band and thinking the world's going to fall in front of you, and then realizing, man, this is you know this is, life is not all roses, so get ready. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, like I said, when we did Metazoa, we were young men in our mid, early to mid twenties. Arthur, I think, was like twenty two or something. He was younger than us, and I'm I'm about to turn thirty six. So it's uh, it's been a, <laughs> a decade of of extreme disappointments in a lot of ways, and uh, I don't know. Yeah, I guess maybe the the music reflects that, but uh, it seems to be what we gravitated towards. So makes sense. And you kind of moved over it quickly, but to have a shift at the helm from vocalist and bassist, which Art was, to having someone come in on the on the third album, um, you know, I still think the vocals sound excellent, but they're definitely different, markedly different. Tell us about that. Was that a real blow to the thoughts of the trajectory of the band, or was it? It seems like it was taken in stride relatively well. It was. Um we had known that Arthur wanted to leave. We did a tour in 2012 with Primordial and While Heaven Wept. It was this big East Coast tour. First time we've ever been over there since then, actually. It's the only time we've ever been to the East Coast in, in 2012. And he actually wanted to leave the band before that. Um, but we ended up convincing him that this would be a great thing to do just for, you know, to remember when we're old men that we did this tour. So we kind of had the luxury of knowing he was going to leave for a few months before he actually did leave. Um, and I think that helped us, uh, sort of collect our thoughts and, you know, figure out the game plan for when he did leave because we didn't, what we didn't want was to have our momentum stop. We had (coughs) kind of a lot of, uh, pretty good momentum going on dwellings. It was, pretty well received by a lot of critics and it was named uh, the best metal album of the year in NPR, which was pretty cool. Uh, so we didn't want to be like, all right, see ya, we're done. Um, even though it was a big deal that the vocalist and the bassist and the lyricist was leaving to a lot of people, a lot of people kind of wrote us off. Nick and Brennan and I, the second we kind of 
came together and realized that we would have to move on without Arthur, we didn't have a second thought. We said, that's fine. Uh, well, you know, it sucks, but we'll, we'll move on. We'll find someone else. Because the thing about Cormoran is a lot of people may have thought that because Arthur did all the interviews, he wrote all the lyrics, he was the front man, basically. Yeah. People had a misconception that like he was the band. He like did everything. And that's absolutely not the case. He did a lot, obviously, but Cormorant has always and will always be the sum of its parts. We write together. Everyone like contributes even like in terms of instruments, they don't play like Brennan. The drummer is really good at coming up with melodies and like figuring out transitions because he also plays guitar we, uh, Nick and I, even though we're not drummers, we will have input about like what kinds of beats should go or like what kind of blast beats should happen. Everyone is contributing to our music. It's not just one person. So we knew that even though we were, mi- we were going to miss an important part of our band, it wouldn't be the end of the world if we just focused and right. we're on the same page about about what to do next. And we found Marcus relatively quickly again through Craigslist fucking shout out to Craigslist. (laughs) That's awesome. I joined because of Craigslist and Marcus. So, uh, and I actually knew Marcus a little bit from, um, just the Sonoma County music scene. So him coming in, wasn't like a total random person. I I had met him before and kind of knew him and he just is a perfect fit for us personally and musically. Like right off the bat, he was, he speaks the same musical language as us. He he's in a band. He's been in this band vengeance for like 15 years. That's like a pretty big Bay area thrash band. So, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was challenging when it first happened because we were like, fuck, we, we, we can't let this like halt our momentum. But at the same time, it was like you said, we, we took it in stride and we just kind of moved forward and kept writing music. Sweet. Yeah, thank God, thank God you did because you know these later albums have a lot to offer. And for all of our listeners who listen to the Metazoa album and now are introduced to Cormorant, go out and check out these other albums and buy the albums on Bandcamp and support the band because they really are impressive and distinguishable. Each one is very distinguishable. Earth Diver is very raw, and and yeah. you know uh, Metazoa is very polished and upbeat and uplifting, and Diaspora's dark and foreboding but very polished so uh they all have really neat parts now you mentioned matt that you were kind of years of disappointment and and things kind of stagger your writing and they refine your tastes and what you want to express musically is there uh are there are there aspects of those disappointments that you're talking about with respect to the the music industry itself and, and popularity or notoriety, financial success, those types of things, or are you talking about more interpersonal relationship type stuff? Yeah, mostly just, just, uh, just the world as we see it, you know, the, the, the music industry for us has never been, cause we've always been, do, we've always done things our own way from the very beginning. That's, that's kind of one of the things a lot of people like about us, I think is that, um, we've, we've put out five albums ourselves, done tours ourselves. Everything we do is DIY basically. Um, and it's, we're, we're not like a, a bunch of jaded dudes who like are hoping for a record contract or something. We don't give a fuck about that. Like we, we just want to create music. And if people want to 
listen to it and and be there with us in that that's great i think the anger comes more from just seeing how fucked up the world is and feeling really powerless to do anything about it um but that's what's great about music is it's such a great outlet especially for a creator because you can kind of channel these emotions that are really hard to come to terms with and and you know it it comes out in this like musical form that people can enjoy in a different way and it means something different to you than it does to them but it's still music so everyone experiences it in a certain way uh so I think that's that's kind of where the rage come came from on those later records just just us like (laughs) pissed off about a myriad things in the world and also it just sounds cooler on a guitar when you're able to to yeah to, to sound really angry I guess yeah, it's got to be kind of uh, really awesome to have your anger or your venting uh, be so meaningful to so many people because it's become this kind of thing that can be interpreted a bunch of different ways and it created something really awesome. So it's like, you know, it, something came of it, you know, so that's kind of cool. Definitely. I always think of it that way, especially after we finished an album. I feel like I'm so glad that I have this outlet, you know, like. Right. And even when things aren't, you know, I, I'm recording this on my kind of home setup. Uh, it's, it's great to just pop off and do anything musical when you're, when you're feeling down, at least for me, it is. It's a game changer, Matt. You, I mean, people don't realize, and one of the big reasons Phil and I wanted to start this podcast was to promote, and I can't sit on my hands and not let people know how much I love your guys' music. It, it means too much to me. And and music in general, when you hear an album that gets you through a, about a depression that everybody has at some varying phases of their life, you want to share it with people because it was therapy. It was actual therapy. It got you through a tough time. And man, I'll tell you that you guys are doing it for the love of the human spirit, really. When you get down to it, you're doing it for the love of sharing this kind of energy with the world. And there's mo- nothing more noble uh, than that. So I don't want to make it sound too grandiose, but to me, it means a whole hell of a lot, man. So keep it up. Oh yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's great that that's one of the best things about being in a band, honestly, is, you know, obviously we write this music for us at the end of the day, but when people are able to tell us that our records mean something to them, it's, it's a, it's a surreal feeling, but it's also really cool because, you know, it, it lets you know that your art is like uh, being taken in by by people and not just like out there in the ether. <laughs> right. right, right. Well, Matt, I think now is a good time since we've gotten through the uh, sad stuff, the angry shit, the hunky dunky, you know, lovey dovey shit. Now let's get to do something, have a little fun. I want to play a game with you before we start reviewing the Metazoa album. Phil and I wanted to play a game with you called Name That Riff. So what I'm going to do is I think before we start reviewing Metazoa top to bottom and you kind of give us your insights on how it was recorded and what it means and and what you want listeners of that album to know about each track. I I have done it in a very specific way. Okay, so you have uh, eight songs that I'm going to play for you that are six seconds in length. And there are two of them from each of your four albums. So there's a theme here. It's two, four, six, eight. We're going to play eight songs. You're going to try to identify the riffs. And if you get all eight right, I think forever and always your new name 
amongst anyone who ever comes into contact with you should be a master shredder. Do you <laughs> do you accept that challenge? <laughs> uh, with respect to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, I do accept. Uh, I, I will be called right. Master Shredder. Uh, all right, awesome, awesome. Okay, so uh, what, what I've done here is I have these labeled, and uh, you know, to me, this seems like a, an unpassable challenge because it's just they're so damn short. But I have it broken out. Uh, <laughs> just randomly selected so they're not going to be two from one album then two from the next then two from the next i didn't make it that easy but if you get stumped i'm willing to do that but at first i want to just these are randomly selected two from each album and i want to play the first four before we jump into it then we'll jump into reviewing metazoa then we'll review the last four and at the very end i'll tell you how many you got right so you ready to play i am ready all right here we go first clip of Name That Riff. Okay, before, before you answer, I'm gonna give you twice. I'm gonna give it to you a second time. Here it comes again. The first clip of Name That Riff. Uh, that w- that would be Junta off Dwellings. I'm not going to tell you if you're right. How <laughs> confident are you? Pretty confident. I know what section that is. I know the vocal that comes after it. Oh. Well, I guess I'll be- just eat sound. shit for breakfast. <laughs> uh, no, you're forgetting no. that I wrote all these riffs. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, like, he's going to know probably. <laughs> well, it's, it's funny because I got two kids. And you could ask me something really important that they did last week, and I'd be like, ah, I don't know. I mean, all right. Well, the thing about making an album is you have to listen to the songs 10 billion times, and they're right. deeply embedded in your DNA. So let's, let's continue. I feel good about this. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Here we go. Next one. Clip number two. Here it comes. Now, that one I feel like is pretty identifiable. Do you need to even hear that one again, or are you feeling confident? No, that's the Devourer off of uh, the new one, Diaspora. Oh, you feel pretty confident, do you? Yeah, I remember working on that that riff. <laughs> All right, well... I remember when I wrote it. I'm going to keep the listeners in suspense, but let's just tip the hat a little bit and say, he's pretty good. All right, number three. Let's hear if you know number three. You need to hear that one again, or are you good? No, that's uh, the beginning of Sold as a Crow off Earth Diver. God damn, this guy. I mean, uh, yeah, we'll let you know how he does. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> next one is clip number four. No stairway. Denied. <laughs> <laughs> Just teasing. That's a clip from 1992's Wayne's World with Mike Myers. <laughs> classic. Right. Cl- classic no stairway. Okay, clip number four for real. Coming at you. Ready to go. That's uh, 
Salt of the earth, Metazoa. God, this guy's money. All right. Yeah, well, that's the solo section. Let, let me just say you're off to a very impressive start. So since we got through the first four of eight, and the fourth was from the amazing and kind of first long playing album that you guys had, let's, jo- let's dive right into it, okay, Matt? So tell us, the, the layout of the album generally, you have this, it's not a concept album, right? I mean, it's individual tracks with individual kind of concepts, which I think is more challenging than a concept album. Would you agree? Yeah, it's not. um, So like I said earlier, we this album was written basically right when I joined the band based on stuff that those guys already had and stuff I was bringing in and then stuff we worked on together. So it's kind of it's our it's our most like hodgepodgey album for sure. It's the longest album. It's got the most stuff going on with it because. I think the the main thing about Metazoa is we were so stoked to go to like a real studio for the first time that we just threw everything at this fucking record. Like there's so much stuff on it that would, that more, more stuff than we've ever done for sure. Cello, female vocals. We had our buddy Aaron from giant squid come in and do guest vocals, uh, fucking mandolin. <laughs> like it, it's a, it's, it's, it's a product of a bunch of young dudes being super gung ho about making, the biggest record we could and uh uh, what what was the question sorry (laughs) well it was just the the layout of the tracks they're each individual thoughts they're not a they're not cohesive one doesn't lead into the other and that's kind of you already answered that they are separate thoughts yeah yeah separate songs but uh, arthur uh his lyrics i think he tried to kind of it's called metazoa because it's a lot of the songs have to do with man's relationship with nature. And even though some of the tunes are not in that uh, theme, a lot of them are. And also the artwork is. So it's sort of a themed album and sort of not. I was going to ask Scott too. Sorry. Is that? Okay. I'm not sure what the figure is, but it looks like they're pouring out like creation or nature. Is that accurate? Yeah. It's, I was it's so intrigued by that artwork. Yeah, it's um, it's supposed to be a representation of Gaia or Mother Earth, awesome. um, okay. sort of cr- creating life in biological form. So that's why there are like sea sea uh, sea creatures on the back, and there's like a wolf and uh, an elk on the front. And uh, yeah, that that's that's what that is. Great art, man. As soon, it's like as soon as you see that, you're like, man, what's that about? Like, and who did who did that? Who did the art for that one, Matt? Julie Dillon. Uh, did that one she's a graphic artist I think I don't know if she still does but she she worked with Wizards of the Coast which is um, they do all the art for like Dungeons and Dragons and um, Magic the Gathering I think or something along those lines so she's a I think she's still working Um, she does mostly like high fantasy art I don't remember how we found her I think it was on DeviantArt the website but uh, yeah, Julie Dillon, we, we gave her sort of an outline of what we wanted and then went back and forth with her for a long time <laughs> to get to get back in those days. We were a little more uh, hands on with the, the artistic process in terms of like micromanaging what we wanted. But I think it turned out awesome. That's that's a crazy art, uh, cover for sure. Yeah, no kidding. It turned out fucking awesome. It's like one of the best album covers uh, in, in terms of 
you know, I'm not going to blow you here, but it's one of the best album covers I've ever seen. I love this album art. Sick. Thanks. Yep. All right. Let's start with number one, Scavenger's Feast. Tell us what you want the listeners to know about that one, Matt. Scavenger's Feast. Um, I feel like it's a it's a great intro track in terms of sort of it's like a mid-paced song with a lot of heaviness and a lot of dynamics. There's a that middle section in there that kind of gets quiet and then explodes into like a loud part at the end. <coughs> so it's a good it's a good way to start the album. I think we always knew that that was what we wanted to start the record with. Uh, I don't remember too much about when it was written and the process but I do remember that those riffs were part of another song that those guys had that we sort of reworked and then we slowed it down and changed the middle and added some more stuff and it became Scavenger's Feast but we used to go ahead I'll say there's a riff at like 243 it's like one of the best on the album I think it fucking kicks ass I just wanted to say that whoever came up with that man was that, that was awesome, man. It's hard to remember who came up with what from 10 yeah. years ago, but uh, we were all probably working on it together. And that that song, especially back in those days, we would open with live like every time. That was in our set for a long time. And it, a lot of people, because it's the first song on the album, it's interesting how digital streaming works because we can see these analytics of who's listening to what on our Bandcamp page and even Spotify and scavengers feast is always like right at the top because it's the first song. Uh, sometimes people will just, you know, for whatever reason, turn off an album after a couple of songs, but that one always has like a shitload of analytics. Like if people are listening nice. to that one and it also, there's also some YouTube channel has it and it's got like a fuckload of views. So that one <laughs> is always interesting to see that people sort of, uh, connect us to that song, even though we haven't played it live in a long ass time. Well, the the next one is one of Phil's favorites, and I, I think it's a, a great jam too. Uneasy lies the head. Is there something about that one that you think is kind of what made it really strong second track? Because I think it's pretty powerful. <clears throat> yeah, I don't remember if we decided it should be the second right away or not. But that song was one that I brought in a lot of riffs for because I was in this band <laughs> called Shitstorm back in the day. <laughs> and uh, we were kind of like Viking-y, like Stein swinging riffs, like kind of a monomarthy, I guess. Um, and that whole end section with the, the chanting and stuff and the... Uh, Whoa, that whole part. I brought, I remember bringing that into those guys because they had the first part of the song, and I said, Hey, I got this weird, like, Viking chant part, and they were super on board with it. Definitely not something that we would do anymore in terms of, like, the, you know, feel good sing along stuff. Like I said, like, get, we tended to get a little more pissed off in later years, and I guess there's not not time for sing-alongs uh, when you're pissed off, but uh, right. we, we we were stoked about that when we came up with it, and uh, that was like the first time I think I had done vocals too when we started working on that because I came into the band as a guitar player only. They didn't really know that I did vocals, and I, I sort of didn't really want to, but then just through necessity, it kind of worked out that 
I sang that part and then they were like, Oh, we should do more of that stuff. And, um, yeah. It's awesome. I, it sounds like it's about the French revolution or just generally, you know, uh, the, fr- the fragile, the fragility and, uh, you know, trying to rule over people and, and the masses and, you know, it's, it's like a sort of double-edged sword and, uh, because you have the power, but you also have, you're the one that everyone blames or, you know, you're the one they're coming for if something goes wrong or, and it's just such a cool theme. And man, the riffs I think are so fucking legit. I, that is, it's more like a top ten metal song for me. I can't even, I can't <laughs> praise it enough. It's so fucking good. Cool. So good job on that. Thanks. Yeah, the lyrics are about uh, the French Revolution. Ro- Robespierre, I think. Um, Arthur was like, because Arthur wrote all these lyrics. I took over lyrics when he left and Marcus, but for the first two albums, Arthur wrote all the lyrics, um, and he was way into history and sort of relating historical events to like you know the current landscape um and he's french too so he had a connection to the french revolution um and so yeah all those lyrics are are about uh i believe it's robespierre who was some sort of figure in the french revolution i didn't really pay (laughs) pay much attention to the lyrics back then i just kind of we just kind of let him do what he wanted and um but yeah yeah that's a fun song we used to play it all the time uh, live sweet man the third track is salt of the earth and i'll tell you from a personal experience when i got this cd from cd baby and i listened to the first two tracks i was like wow this is really great and then i heard salt of the earth and it took it to next level of damn this is this is something i've never really heard and then it goes to blood on the cornfields which was ultimately my favorite so it kind of just built and i was thinking that it can't possibly sustain this level of excellence and it did, and it actually accelerated. So tell me about your thoughts on Salt of the Earth, track number three. Salt of the Earth is, a, we actually brought that back recently. We've started playing it again live. Um, <clears throat> it's a fun one. It's uh, it's definitely, the beginning of it is very Opeth-influenced. Uh, we, we used to call it the Opeth song because uh, the beginning of it really reminded us of like mid-era Blackwater Park era, uh, Opeth. Um there's a lot of like in flamesy riffing in that song. Like that's again something that we probably wouldn't do anymore. But like the the two guitars doing the sort of Gothenburgy single note uh, galloping stuff. Um, but yeah, it's it's a fun song. Uh, I think that's the first one that my brother Andrew plays keyboards on. He has a few uh, keyboard parts on that song. One of many guest appearances. <coughs> uh, yeah. That's about all I remember about Salt. It's fun to play it, though, especially the the end section with the solos. Nick and I are both trading off on, on solos on that one. How is that? How well received is it 10 years past? I mean, are, are you still getting great reception from the crowds? Yeah, people seem to like when we bust out the old ones because it was interesting. When, when Arthur left, we didn't really put much attention on okay, now we got to get someone to like play these old songs. We were working on new stuff. We always are kind of like that. We're, we're, we're always like looking forward to what we can do. And not, not that we don't like playing old songs, but we're more interested in like creating new stuff just for us. So when it comes to playing live, we tend to focus more on new stuff. But um, it is fun to bust out the old ones uh, every once in a while, especially Salt of the Earth. We probably hadn't played it in six years at the time that we brought it back. 
So it's, it's cool to see people's faces when they realize that we're doing it because they're like, oh shit, didn't expect that one. Okay, so the next one is my personal favorite, Blood on the Cornfields, and it has probably my favorite piece of any song of any genre ever when you guys, I, I don't know who it is, I guess it's art, is screaming, was Christ not crucified three times to this huge climax and the sim- symbolism that's associated with that uh, to me is just, uh, I don't know, it's, I love it. W- what are your thoughts on that song? Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Arthur, yeah, that is Arthur. Uh, when he was, <laughs> that's funny because that take that we weren't going to use that take because his voice kind of cracks at the end. I don't know if you notice it, but if, if you go back and listen, he's screaming, was Christ not crucified? And the last one, his voice kind of like cracks and goes to a weird warbly high pitched thing. And we were, when it happened, we were like, ah, fuck that take. We got to do another one. And our producer, Billy Anderson, who, by the way, haven't mentioned yet, but legendary producer Billy Anderson, who's done everything from sleep, neurosis, ohm, uh, you name it. The dude's been around for fucking years. We are so stoked to work with him and we're <laughs> kind of blown away that he did want to work with us because we were just a fucking nobody band. Like back then we had been around for a few years yeah. and, but Billy is so cool once you get to know him that he's another guy who is, even though he's like, he's so well respected in the genre and he's done so many great records. He still is just all about the music. He does it for the music. He doesn't give a fuck. Like if you are just a nobody band or you're the biggest band in the world, if he digs the music and you can get along with him, then he's down to record your album. So we were so stoked to work with him because we're such big fans of like dope smoker and um, all the neurosis records that he did. Uh, But anyway, so Arthur did that take, he, his voice cracked, we laughed at him and said, uh, we got to redo that. And then Billy said, no, 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 we got to keep that take. That's fucking, that's real shit. Like that's priceless. And then, so now, like you said, it's, I've heard that before. A lot of people have said that's like their favorite part on the whole record for, you know, for whatever reason, it, it gets to some like real part of, of Arthur, um, that came out of him in that song. Um, but for the song itself, the song is about lyrically, it's about, uh, a, a slave, uh, the Nat Turner slave uprising, which is the actual thing that happened, um, where Nat Turner was a slave who, um, rallied a bunch of slaves together in the dead of night on a plantation and they murdered all these slave owners. It was like this big fucking uprising. Um, so that's what the lyrics are about. Musically, is this is a crazy song for us. Definitely not something we would do anymore. But it's very like there's a we used to call it the Southern song because it's kind of got like a, a you know. And I think that's why Arthur ended up writing lyrics about that topic because we write music before the lyrics come. It always has been like that. We we get the music where we want it, and then we can start thinking about lyrics and what can go over the top of the music. So since we were we had these riffs that were very like southern sounding and uh, uh, we were calling it like the southern song, Arthur, you know, took that and said, okay, well I'll write some lyrics about something that happened in the south. Uh, but it's got a lot of like uh, yeah, kind of bouncy uh, riffs that were definitely influenced by Slaufeg, which is a, a Bay Area band. That's uh, they're great. One of our, yeah, one of yeah, they are. Yep. Yeah. One of our favorites for sure. We've we've been able to play a few shows with them, and they're they're awesome. Um, 
but yeah, it, it, interesting song. We again, we used to play it a lot live, but we don't really anymore because of just the sound sonically. It's just totally different than anything we've done since then. But it's fun. It's bouncy. It's got a lot of like drive yeah. to it. It's it's funny that the bouncy tempo. Sorry, Alex, uh, but that bouncy tempo you mentioned. I I was thinking of Slough Egg when you said like especially high passage, low passage. Yeah. Um, that song and uh, it almost reminded me of something from uh older in Flames because of the I don't know if it's the tuning or what where it goes do 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 do. It just sounds uh, Gothenburgy, like with a hint of it anyway. Yeah, for sure. Oh, that was. Awesome was- that must have, yeah, it must have been written early when I joined the band because when my fr- when we first got two guitars, like before they were writing music with just one guitar, then when I came in there was two guitars and we immediately were, just started doing Gothenburg stuff. Like I don't know that that must have just been our instinct, but that was a definitely right. uh, Blood on the Cornfield is a big example of that where Nick and I are just kind of doing that like t- you know tandem guitar thing that we would sort of move away from in later years. Track five, Matt, is probably, if I had to guess, I would consider that what you guys agree is the kitchen sink song because it's 11 minutes and 16 seconds long. It's track five, but it's got a lot of variety, a lot of stop and start and slow emotional, but fast pace. It's got a kind of everything in the mix. Would you agree with that analysis? Yeah. Yeah. Hanging Gardens, like I said earlier, if I had to pinpoint a song that I would say would move us into the next album sonically. That's the song. Um, Hanging Gardens was a real breakthrough for us because we realized we could have different movements in songs. We could do different things over a long span of time and keep attention and keep the movement going and not have things just crash and burn after like eight minutes. Um, It introduced the, you know, sort of the concept of long form writing to us where we would end up, you know, Diaspora is the ultimate example of that. We have a song that's 26 minutes long on that album. Um, the, the title, uh, it's called my migration, but, uh, yeah, hanging, hanging gardens was, was a, was a huge turning point for, for us. I think it was written pretty late in the process, like right before we went into the studio, or at least it was finished pretty late and it's got tons of stuff going on, tons of guest stuff. Um, the cello on that is this dude, Lewis Patzer, who was in this band Judgment Day um, from the Bay Area. They were a really unique band where it was no guitars. It was just him and his brother, violin and cello, and then a drummer. And they were like the heaviest fucking thing you'd ever heard. <laughs> wow. awesome. Really, yeah. Check check them out if, if you get a chance, um, especially like live videos. Uh, Judgment Day, fucking great band. I don't, I don't know if they're still playing anymore, but they were really big, like around 2009 in the Bay Area. So <coughs> we were thinking about who we, because we knew we wanted some sort of string, uh, strings on the album, and we uh, initially wanted our friend Jackie um, from Giant Squid and Gracian to do it. She couldn't do it, um, so we ended up asking Lewis because we had played a show with Judgment Day and we remembered him. And he said, yeah, for sure. So he came in and he did, a, a, I think there are four songs he appears on and, uh, uh, hanging gardens is the first appearance of him, but he, he fucking nailed it on that song, especially the whole end section. Um, the really slow, like doomy part at the end, he's playing along with the riff on his cello. And we all, when we were listening to him play, every time I hear it now, it makes me think of a swarm of angry bees. 
So if you listen to that song again at the end of that of Hanging Gardens, it just sounds like a fucking swarm of bees coming to kill you. And we thought that was awesome. And when you have somebody come on like a guest musician to do whatever it is, mandolin, cello, what have you, how does that work? Do you give them the the tuning of the guitars and, and the melody and then they go from there and kind of improvise based on their experience? Or do you say, no, I want it to sound like this or a little bit of both? How does that work? Yeah, well, actually, we we demo everything before we go to a studio. We, we've always done that. We have our own recording set up in our rehearsal space. So we record demos of all the songs so just so we know where certain, like if we need to change certain things here and there, so we're not wasting time in the studio. And because we have those demos, we just sent them to Lewis before he was going to go into the studio and, and told him, okay, here at like minute two, this is where we want the cello to be. So he, he was able to hear it beforehand, get some ideas. And this guy was like a total professional. He's like a, chamber musician basically he he is a total pro so he was able to listen to the track and come up with these melody lines just on his own and and when he came to the studio to lay them down we were immediately like yes that's perfect like we didn't have any changes to what he was doing because it was just so amazing so we just let him do his thing but yeah he heard them beforehand with the demos that's amazing i mean musical talent to me is amazing i'm a complete consumer and I, and I dabbled and played drums, but I have no sense of melody creation. And, and to me, it's just amazing that you can even create a song and hear in your mind a place that does not have a cello in it, where you subsequently want a cello. <laughs> that, that, yeah. To me, is insane. I just don't understand how a brain works like that, but it's amazing. Gotta have that cello. Right. <laughs> gotta, have, gotta have more cello. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird. I... I I don't know where that comes from. I still, it still happens to me now when I record my own music, where I'll listen to it and I'll, and something will just come into my head that's not there on the song, but I'll hear it. I don't know. I, I don't know how else to describe it. And then, and then you just add that thing that's in sure. that's in your head. <laughs> Hopefully, you can get it out of your head. Um, you know, but, but yeah, we we always knew that cello would be awesome because we were big fans of local bands like giant squid and Gracian and judgment day bands that use the cello. The cello is just such a sad, powerful instrument that we knew there were certain sections of, of the record that would really benefit from it. A, a few months back, I saw leprous over in Lauderdale and they opened with like a five or 10 minute cello solo. And it was fucking awesome. I mean, unbelievably awesome. Yeah, it's a it's an amazing instrument. Um, and hanging, yeah. So back to yeah, hanging gardens. Um, I think I have been over everything on that. Uh, that's that has more keyboards from my brother Andrew. There's uh, female vocals are by Brennan's sister Deborah, who is also a classically trained vocalist who is a performs with a lot of bands in the Bay Area. <coughs> she came in and all of her stuff was improvised. That was cool because she would just listen to the track a couple times and then she would just sing whatever. And we kept certain things. Billy would, would cut certain parts of her performance and put them in later spots. And it was cool because we had sort of like an improvised palette to work with where we could insert her vocals anywhere we wanted to in the mix and just have like them be little touches that added to the song. 
Do you do you consider yourself like the King Midas of music that you're just everything you touch turns to gold in the sense that you have all these people that just kind of like are around you that are incredible and amazing or is what do you De- attribute that luck to? Uh, I don't know. Definitely don't feel like King Midas. Sometimes I question if what I'm doing is is any good just like any other musician, but uh no, we're just fortunate to be in an area that has so many amazing musicians and bands <coughs> and also to have relationships with people and our families as well. Like I said, my brother is an amazing keyboardist and musician. He, he lives in LA and he plays electronic music, but he's adept at playing all kinds of music. So anytime we need keyboards, we know we go to my brother. Uh, anytime we need female vocals, we know we go to Brennan's sister. We have all kinds of friends who play all kinds of multi-instruments. So if, if we have a need, we're, we're lucky enough that, that we have people in our lives who can fulfill that need. It's just, it's, it's, it's a cool luxury to have for sure. Yeah. Super cool blessing. Well, I want to, I want to go back to the, uh, the challenge that we have here is to name the riff because we are halfway through Metazoa and that means you're now ready for clip number five. So get your ears ready. we gave you plenty of time uh, to, to rest them. So here, here it comes. You ready? Yeah. That's uh, blood <laughs> blood on the cornfields from yeah. Metazoa. That that one you can I can still hear the rest of the song playing in my head just as you were singing it. <laughs> I can I can even hear the ride cymbal one just think. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> that right. was a that was a decision we made in mixing where we cut out all the instruments except for the ride just to have that like uh, you know that moment of just the ding and then everything explodes back in. I think if I don't have no idea on my uh, phone, it probably tells me, you know, how many times you've listened to this song from your phone, which is probably, you know, 60 or 80 times, something like that. Plus all the times in the car, I think each and every time I have lifted my hand and done it as though I was hitting. (laughs) Cool. All right. So let's do number six, number six coming at you right now. Yeah, replay it because you, you kind of cut out in the middle there. All right. Yeah, that's uh, Migration from the new album. It's like the middle section that's like 12 minutes long. Well, I'd love to keep people in suspense, but let's just repeat. He's pretty good. All right, num- number seven, clip number seven. Let's see if I can stump this. You good to go on that one, Matt, or you need it again? Sorry, do it again. It cut out again in the middle. All right, here it comes. Uh, Phenambulist off Dwellings. God, all right, listen, I'm not keeping anybody in suspense, okay? Because <laughs> this is the real suspense right here. You are seven for fucking seven. So... Let me just say, you are, you are like, you're actually quite literally, you're six seconds away from becoming Master Shredder. So here, oh. the suspense has come to you, my friend, because the pressure's on. 
That's right. The pressure is on, and whether or not you want to be Master Shredder or April, the reporter, is up to you. So <laughs> it's quite a quite a drop off. That. That's right. That's right. It, it's all about perfection. Okay, here's the last one. Can I at least be Casey Jones? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, right. that's cool. I'll take that. All right. Pretty good. Last one, and I'll even give this one to you three times because I, I want I want to see you nail this. And i got to tell you, I really did not think you were going to be able to. Here, here's clip number eight for all the marbles, Master Shredder in the balance. Matt, what do you think? I feel like you're trying to... Play it again. All right, here it goes. This, this this is this is not a joke. This is not from Wayne's World. Okay. This is this is definitely a Camorin uh, riff, but this All is right. a tough. Yeah, uh, it sounds like Broken Circle off Earth Diver. God, he's the fucking man. This guy is the man, <laughs> nice, man. Master <Yeah>. Shredder. <laughs> Shred. <laughs> I'm gonna, Every moment of your life has led to this. <laughs> oh man! I can recognize my own music. That's awesome. Has, has, right, it, I know. has this really solidified that it's all been worthwhile? All those hundreds of hours away from all those other yeah. things on Earth you could have been doing. This is what sealed it. Two random dudes can quiz on your own riffs. <laughs> At least it tells me that my brain is not uh, fully gone now. I can exactly. recall my uh, previous endeavors. All right, and, and I'm going to recap it uh, for folks because if they want to listen to them and, and double check you, the first four, was, number one was five minutes and 12 seconds to 518 of Junta from Dwellings. Number two was The Devourer, 222 to 228 from Diaspora. Number three was Sold as a Crow, 39 seconds to 45 seconds from Earth Diver. And number four was Salt of the Earth, 550 to 556 from Metazoa. You're just the fucking man. I mean, what can you say? Uh, I'd like to thank uh, everyone who got me <laughs> here. Right. The guy from <laughs> Blockbuster Music. Uh, there it is. Right. <laughs> you got a shout out. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, let, let's go back to Metazoa here since you nailed the uh, Master Shredder, nailed the quiz. L- number six is the shortest, well, second shortest song on the album. It's called The Crossing. And this is one of the ones that hooked Phil very early on because yeah, the riffs man. are just awesome. And I, I'm sure you had a lot to do with this one so uh tell us about track number six the crossing the crossing is always we refer to it as uh for lack of a better word the filler song and by that i mean we wanted to have a faster song and because we always knew hanging gardens was gonna uh go sort of into uh hole in the sea but we wanted to have a fast kind of like banger and we, we were realizing that all of our songs were like six, seven minutes, ten minutes. And we said, man, it would be cool if we just had like a three-minute song that we could just like blast them in and out. So we wrote that song real quick, um, like maybe a couple weeks before we went into the studio. That's why we call it the filler song, because it was not planned like to be on the album, really. Um, the riffs were sort of like all kinds of riffs we had laying around that we merged together tried to make it sound cohesive <laughs> i remember working on the arrangement in the studio while we were recording it because we were like no we got to cut this one part because it goes on too long and blah 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 usually all that stuff is worked out beforehand like because we, we would just go in and record it and hopefully get a good take but the crossing was like 
sort of reminded me of like you know metallica some kind of monster we, we were like arguing about it in the studio but um yeah. uh it, it's a fun little song the the lyrics yeah. are based on the book the crossing by cormac mccarthy which i was reading in the studio arthur didn't even have lyrics and we were like uh what do we what the fuck is is this gonna because we we're thinking maybe it would be an instrumental and then we said uh oh, let's try doing some lyrics about this book um so we ended up kind of taking some themes from the crossing and uh you know about the wolf and uh my the migrant worker and stuff um yeah it's just a fun quick little old school death me- or melodic death metal song that uh we haven't played in many years <laughs> well it's like I, that's how i kind of got into it because it was just so short you're like well it's not even worth skipping you might as well just listen to it and then uh it's like a palate cleanser you're like that was really nice and then i just it just caught on and you can't really get wrong with it. It's just so quick, even if you you can't get tired of it. So you just put it on. Yeah, that was kind of the idea, just to break up the length of the... Because the back half of the yeah. album is pretty long. Like, most of the long songs are on the second half. So we figured, let's try to yeah. try to do a quick one in there just to, to cleanse the palate. Yeah. Good buffer. Now, the next song is track number seven, Hole in the Sea, which to me has some of the most amazing visualizations created by the sounds because it's very obvious with the, the waves crashing and, and the birds. It sounds like seagulls kind of flying over. It definitely has that atmospheric agaloc type feel where you feel like you're at the sea or the ocean. Uh, tell us about Hole in the Sea. <coughs> Hole in the Sea is the most interesting song in the album in terms of the production of it because it's totally improvised and by that I mean we knew uh, one of the things we used to do back in these days is we we still do to a certain extent but we improvised entire sections of music like when we get together and practice that's how we start every practice to this day as we just start playing something and it goes on for like 20-30 minutes And sometimes we'll pull something out of there that's usable and we turn into like a riff or something. Usually it's just to get like the juices flowing and get everybody like on the same page musically. So we're ready to practice hole in the sea was, was like that, but we turned it into a song and we recorded it in the studio, totally improvised. Um, We had like the skeleton of where the changes would be and like where the, the, drums would pick up and where we go heavy and stuff but in terms of what everyone is actually playing it's totally improvised and we recorded maybe like i don't know five or six versions of it and obviously the one on the record is the one we ended up keeping um but that's we've never done that since and we probably never would do that again but for some reason that song felt like it needed to just be free and open like that uh and the vocals on it are obviously interesting and not like anything else because that is our friend Aaron, uh, AJ, who was in this band, great fucking band called Giant Squid from San Francisco. They are not together anymore, but they were like a big part of the scene back in those days. And um, he has this really distinct vocal sound. Obviously, his voice is very like Tom Waitsy kind of sounds like a old drunken sailor or something uh so and we were big fans of giant squid and and we wanted his him to do some guest vocals because again metazoa was our record where we were throwing everything at it we wanted all kinds of shit we wanted guest vocals we wanted cello we wanted blah 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 blah. um 
So Aaron came in, and uh, one night we fed him a bunch of pizza and got him drunk on Newcastle. And he... <laughs> Nice. Yeah. Good call. And then he just, um, he did the, his vocals for maybe two or three hours and did a bunch of different ideas and takes and stuff. And we ended up coming up with a, a plan of he would do certain parts and Arthur would scream parts and then they would come together at the end. And that's another song that has cello at the end. It has female vocals. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's very interesting in that it was all just kind of freeform studio song, which is not something we have done since. That's wild. That's yeah. Okay, I want to ask you. I have so many questions for you in terms of wrap up, just overall. But I'll, I'll hold off because we're we're almost at the end. Track number eight is the Emigrants' Wake. Uh, tell us about the meaning of that song, Matt, because uh, I thought that was really interesting. Well. Um, you know, I can't really speak to it lyrically because I didn't write the lyrics, but, you know, obviously it has a lot to do with the ocean. Um, being from California, all four of us are very connected to the ocean and um, what it represents. <clears throat> and a lot of that song has to do with, you know, accepting fate. Um, it, there's that the chorus that says walk into the waves as the footprints fade away there's a lot of um, sort of I guess maybe accepting nature as as the end all be all again I, since I didn't write the lyrics I don't really have like a personal connection to what Arthur was singing about but for me especially because we uh, have the wave samples in the beginning that song is always and the intro riff which is something I came in with I always would picture it as a water riff for lack of a better words like it it, it sounded to me like water so that's our water song and um that's what it means to me every time i play it it's just it feels like it feels like water for for lack of a of a better word i think we said that when we were reviewing it actually that uh, that it kind of reminds you of uh like it's wavy in a way yeah it's got this vastness about it it's yeah especially the beginning and then it gets real weird again this is one of the ones that like hanging gardens it would kind of inform the sound that we ended up going for on dwellings which is like long form songs a lot of stuff going on a lot of dynamics more like sort of black metal-y stuff instead of the melodic death metal stuff more doom stuff um just a lot of uh movement to the to the riffs different sections going into each other. We worked that song. We worked a lot on transitions. I remember because we had a couple different ideas and then we nailed it down right before we went to the studio. There's like a end section that we worked a lot on just in terms of getting the movement of the riffing, right? Because, you know, we want it. That's one of the things about our music is there's so much going on and so many riffs together that we never want it to sound like just a hodgepodge of shit. Like, it's really important to us to have everything flow together and have a nice cohesive listening experience because I don't <coughs> personally speaking, I don't really like music that's just showy and technical for the sake of it. Sometimes I'm into that stuff like, you know, really technical death metal, like origin and, and necrophagist and, and bands like that. But for us, like it's less about showing off what we can do and more about like just being weird and interesting, but also, putting it in like a song structure that's like easily digestible, I guess. Yeah, sure. 
<laughs> when, when you have a 10-minute song like that, nine minutes and 58 seconds, Matt, how much... How many takes does it do? Does it really require for you to get it to sound perfect? Because in ten minutes, with all of you recording, I mean, you're got to be doing this in sections, right? There's no way that you're doing this kind of a live take, all of you playing. One person's laying down the drums, and the other person's laying down guitar. Or are you playing two guitars at once? What's that process like? Because it just seems like there's so many chances of a mistake in ten minutes of recording. No, we we always record together every album we've ever done is recorded live <clears throat> and then we will go back and add layers and guitars on top of what we've done but all the initial ow i just fucking poked myself in the eye <laughs> <laughs> excuse me for a second while i recover. master shredder used his claw and got himself in the <laughs> eye <laughs> he's still getting used to his new abilities <laughs> it's because he sprouted those claws oh god <laughs> god damn it anyway um what was i saying Ten minutes recording all together. Oh yeah, yeah. So obviously it's difficult, and sometimes if you fuck up, that's the thing about us though is we're always extremely well rehearsed when we go into the studio. So in those days we were we were practicing three, four times a week. We we had these songs down like the back of our hand. So when you go in and record, hopefully the the goal is to get it in one take because like time is fucking money. We're just twenty five year old kids who don't have a record deal so we're paying everything out of our pocket and we were metazo was was recorded over 11 days i think um straight through which is something we would never do again and something we learned a lesson on especially when it comes to mixing because like you record all this shit you take fucking a week straight of recording 10 crazy songs and then you immediately have to start mixing it and it's like your brain just isn't in that yeah there are things we would have done differently i'll I'll put it that way if we had time um in between recording and mixing which we do now that's that's the the lesson we learned there but um yeah everything is always recorded live and if someone fucks up we just do another take really what you're looking for is for the drummer to not fuck up because anything else can be fixed like punched in it's really fucking difficult to just punch in drums especially when you're tracking live because the tempos fluctuate it's it's human performance it's not like two because we never play to a click track ever we've done it maybe once or twice to record certain parts because they needed to be um a certain tempo for like a guest instrument or something but for the most part everything we ever do is recorded live together and that creates a certain sound that is can't be replicated so that's what we prefer to do. But again, if you have a 10 minute song, sometimes someone fucks up, you got to start over again. But you know, that's them's the breaks. Yeah, that's crazy. Man. That is wild. I can't believe that. But it probably makes playing live for audiences really easy. Because if you're so familiar with these songs and have recorded them live and all that sort of stuff, it's uh, probably second nature. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're always well rehearsed and ready to go with whatever we're doing that's the last thing you want to do is you know get caught with your pants down at a at a show uh figuratively speaking uh not know not knowing your shit so uh yeah it's the same with the record every time we go in we're we're ready to rock this new one has a 26 minute song that we recorded completely live and we only did it maybe four times and we kept like the third take or something because crazy yeah, and it's just that comes with just a massive amount of practice, you know, and and everybody knowing the song front to back. That's why I can 
pick out your riffs from your phone is because I know this shit. Like it's just inside me. So, uh, <laughs> well, I think it's got to be somewhat rare. I mean, you tell me, Matt. Is it rare to find? three other guys that are that committed to the craft and are that committed to the perfection of it that they're because it just seems like you hear all the time about bands where so-and-so loses interest or so-and-so doesn't have the time to practice or so-and-so doesn't really kind of see the value in perfecting it but it sounds like you guys are all online and saying if we're going to do anything we're going to do it fucking right it's um you know we've been lucky that our lineup has not really changed much beyond the one major change we had. And, um, I see it all the time with bands that fall off because they're always replacing somebody or someone has to go because they are being a dick or whatever. We're, we've been fortunate that all of us have been on the same page with what we want the band to be. I think it's mostly because we're all really good friends first and foremost, Nick and Brennan and I have known each other for over 10 years now. And we've known Marcus, you know, for six now or so. And we're all just uh, great, great friends who uh, get along really well outside of playing music. So that is helpful, I think. And um, yeah, it's just at the end of the day, it's just getting musicians on the same page is, is can be difficult. But if you get the right people, it's a, it's a total blessing because everyone is, you know, on board for the same cause. Awesome. Well, let's let's go to the penultimate track, which is Sky Burial. Tell us a little bit about track nine, Sky Burial. Sky Burial um, is another kind of later song that we wrote. Definitely influenced, now that I have some distance from it, From uh, uh, definitely influenced by Agalock's uh, Ashes Against the Grain album. That first song has sort of a similar feel to it. Um, I'm sure that's what was in our brains. <laughs> I don't know if we did it on purpose, but uh, it's a it's a cool way to sort of take out uh, to end the album. It's obviously not the very last song, but um, it's the last like proper song. The whole middle section was kind of tricky because it was sort of improvised. We didn't really have the exact amount of times we were gonna play that acoustic part in the middle, and since Arthur was doing spoken word over it he had to kind of like change his lyrics and like fit them in different places because we didn't plan that out ahead of time we just sort of improvised the middle section and then came in with the heavy part at the end so that was tricky i remember that being an issue and the middle has a bunch of stuff it has cello it has female vocals it has mandolin which uh, nick plays mandolin um, he also plays banjo but not on this record uh just a lot of experimentation in the middle there and then it's bookended by these like two super heavy parts um i remember the last section <laughs> billy had me record like five guitars because <laughs> we usually just do like one major guitar track and then we record over to double it but billy had me do like five ta- five different guitar parts on the very end of the song just to make it like super heavy and epic and uh yeah it's it's definitely one of my favorites it's it's very minimal in terms of its riffing and uh arrangement but it's i think it's pretty effective it's um it's it's definitely one of my favorites and the lyrics are cool too it's about i don't know how familiar you are with the concept of a sky burial but (laughs) it's it's a thing that tibetans do where they just put a dead body out on on the on a mountain and let vultures eat the body instead of burying it or burning it or something 
So, <laughs> so uh, the idea is for the dead person to become one with the sky because you're you're oh, nice. you're uh, flying around in the belly of a vulture, basically. <laughs> for I was thinking more like you catapult somebody just as high up as you can. Once you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then it comes back down and you got to deal with. It. <laughs> That's your, well, hopefully, it goes far enough. It just yeah. Well, that, <laughs> we were gonna call the album Sky Burial for a minute. Um, I don't remember why we didn't. Name. Yeah, and then in the band Inner Arma ended up calling one of their records Sky Burial, so they they took it. Uh, but I don't remember why we didn't go with it, but it's a cool name. Definitely is the only thing missing is uh, that banjo, man. <laughs> we use the banjo. <laughs> just kidding. We, we we've been trying to shoehorn the banjo in for years, but we just have we just haven't <laughs> found a way to do it. But Nick is fucking amazing banjo player. He he. I bet, man. He has a, a old time band called uh, the Oh God. Uh, well, that's a bad plug because I can't remember his band. Name. <laughs> but it's a it's a, it's a relatively new band, but uh, he plays old time um, banjo and fiddle and stuff. He's he's great. That's cool, man. Yeah. You and Nick, close friends. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't remember his <laughs> goddamn band name. <laughs> uh, all right, so now here's where you're gonna probably think uh, I, I'm a total pussy because I love track ten, which is Voices of the Mountain, and 36 year old Matt probably thinks this is total pussy shit. But I love it. I think it's beautiful. And uh, what, what are your thoughts on it? I mean, it's the only instrumental track on the album, and it's gorgeous, I think. Yeah, you and my mother, uh, it's your both of your favorite uh, songs. But oh, she always yes. says that's her favorite song on the album. I was like, oh, I wonder why that is. No, <laughs> no screaming. Um, right. It was a total last-minute decision by Nick and I. We thought it would be a cool way to end the record where there's it's such a dynamic album full of these highs and lows, heavies and not, and cleans and progression and all these things. We thought, what better way to just end it with like two guys sitting around a campfire playing a little tune. Um, so Nick, that music is Nick's. Nick wrote that whole thing except for my part, um, which I kind of improvised a little bit in the studio. <laughs> I remember <laughs> we had, we had we had finished track it was like day seven seven days straight of tracking all these crazy songs with all these guest people come in and out and billy anderson was like all right so you guys ready to move on to mixing and nick and i were like actually we have a acoustic song we want to record and he was like are you fucking kidding me like, <laughs> <laughs> like so we had to you know we just set up some microphones we did it real quick uh and, in retrospect we probably could have spent a little more time on it but that's it's also part of the charm of it it's it's sort of a capture of just um you know a couple musicians sitting around playing a song you know there's no there's no frills to it it's 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 relatively bare bones two acoustic guitars and one electric that plays a little thing at the end there um with some rain uh, samples that we got um just a nice relaxing way to end a sort of crazy heavy album so I think Matt to put a bow on this whole thing take us into the mind of 26 year old Matt Solis who just finished this incredible album an incredible project with all these influences and all this variety and how probably excited to share it with the world you were versus 36 year old jaded Matt Solis who's probably like yeah that that album was weak our new shit <laughs> our, our new shit is legit I, I mean is that uh tell me about that i mean how does that happen yeah i wouldn't go so far as to say i'm jaded i know what you're saying though um 
we yeah we were excited to get it out uh, the thing about it was though we didn't know what we were going to do with it because at that point we didn't realize we were going to have this whole diy career where we would never be on a label we wanted to be on a label and we sent it out to a few places we had some good feedback we were close to signing a record deal on it that we ended up not signing because it was shit um but yeah, we were, we, and it, it actually took a while for us to do because we recorded it, I think, early in the year and it didn't even come out until like September or something or October. So it was like a good nine months that we were sitting on this thing. And, you know, we eventually decided that we would go the DIY route and that was a whole other thing because we had to, there was no vinyl, but we, we had to figure okay we got to get these cds printed we didn't know anything really about that so we had to learn about that we had to learn about shipping we had to learn about manufacturing costs um we had to hire a publicist our friend kim did did publicity on that record kim kelly um it was a it was a cool time because we were young and hungry and and we wanted to do shit ourselves um which you know not to say we're not we're definitely not young anymore but we're, we're we still enjoy the process of putting it in our own hands you know like no one's gonna do shit for you in this industry especially like unless you get like real hot off something and even then it's like you you get hot and then you're not hot five seconds later um so the fact that we were able to take things in our own hands was was exciting and also kind of nerve-wracking and obviously took a lot of like time and energy and money but it worked out well for us because (coughs) we were able to control everything and do things on our own terms. And that springboarded us into this whole thing of like, no, we're going to do this ourselves. And that, 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 that was the whole beginning of that process. So it, it was, it was definitely an exciting time. Now, 10 years post, as you sit here and kind of talk to us about it, it's, it sounds like you're still memorably affectionate about it and about the time and all that sort of stuff. But the music has changed so much since then how do you feel about that album looking back on it, thinking about it, talking about it? Yeah. I, I mean, we all have a special place in our heart for Metazoa and you know, the last tree, I wasn't on the last tree, but the early stuff that we did um, because it's a snapshot of who we are, you know, it's, it's, it was true. It's, that's the one thing you can say about our records. It's never not true to us. So our music has always comes straight from who we are as people. So that's who we were as people at the time. It may like stylistically, we may have drifted away from certain sounds that were on Metazoa that some people really never forgave us for. You know, a lot of people really like the melodic death style and feel like that's what we do the best. But for us, it was just about moving in into a direction that we felt more comfortable with and, that came from just playing together and really realizing what we were together and like what, what kind of sound we were able to to come up with um, organically instead of maybe being influenced by certain things uh, in the past, like on the first album, there might be a little more influences, you know, that you can hear like Agaloc and Opeth and stuff. Whereas later we would, we would definitely come into what we, sounded like just with no influence obviously you're always going to have some influences bleed into your shit as a musician but just from playing with each other for so long for 10 years you know like multiple times a week always talking about the band and thinking about our music that's obviously just gonna move you into a, a more cohesive direction 
So where are you guys now? You, are you in the process of writing and recording another album? Are you process of uh, considering another tour? Or where, where are you guys as a band today? No, right, right now is a weird time for us because we're kind of on a little bit of a break right now. Um, Nick, our guitar player, actually lives in um, New Mexico now. He moved last year. He, he uh, built a house in Taos, New Mexico. So he doesn't live in the Bay Area anymore. <coughs> um, so the, Nick, uh, Brennan, Marcus, and I are still here. But Nick is in New Mexico, so we've kind of been on a little bit of a break. Um, things are sort of, you know, we, we still talk to each other all the time, and um, things will probably move into a direction of some sort of tour or album eventually. But this last year, Nick was super focused on building his house out in New Mexico, so um, everything has just been kind of, you know, chill since then. But since we're not on a label or anything, it's like we can just do whatever the fuck we want, so it's not... Yes. That's got to be pretty refreshing, yeah. Or pretty, uh, you know, pretty good to know that you don't have no pressure, you know. Yeah, and as long as everyone's on the same page of what we want to do, then it'll happen when it happens. And you know, we we just have to turn down shows every once in a while in the Bay Area because Nick's not around anymore. And that's the thing, you know, like Arthur left, we replaced him. Nick is unreplaceable, <laughs> so he's a, a really important part of our sound. So it's not gonna happen without him. And, um, so that's just where we are now, you know, it's, it is what it is, you know, lives, uh, go in different directions and people move and things happen. So, but, uh, yeah, you know, we're, we're making do. So since you guys are on a temporary hiatus, what do you want to promote? What can our listeners do to support you guys? I know you have that great whole discography available on your Bandcamp page where people can buy all four of the, uh, long playing albums for one set price, which is a steal. Um, so that's probably a good thing they could do. What, what do you want to throw out there? So our listeners will help support you guys. Yeah. The, um, the, the band camp pages has been great for us. We have all of our stuff up on there, all of our CDs, our shirts, you know, we, even though the band is kind of like slow on a slow point right now, I still do all the merch myself and, I'm looking at it right now, actually, in the corner of my office. Uh, so, uh, Bandcamp. If you, we also have a bunch of vinyl versions of our new album. That we had vinyl of Metazoa, Dwellings, and Earth Diver before, but they're actually all sold out. So, but we still have some of Diaspora. And um, uh, our other band, Ursa, um, put out a record in November. That's me. Brennan and Nick. So three, three fourths of us are in another band. Um, it's a doom band, uh, called Ursa. We put out our first album last November. So that is available also on Bandcamp and blood music's website. Nice. Yeah, it's fun. It's, um, it's definitely different than Cormoran. It's a uh, very, <laughs> it's a lot more streamlined and, uh, black Sabbathy. And I hey, can't get wrong. There. And that's yeah. and that band for anybody listening is spelled U R S A. Is that right, Matt? Yeah, yeah, just like the the constellation. Right. So check those guys out for sure because I I listened to that album, your November album, before this call uh, a couple days ago, and it is definitely different. It's excellent. Is that? But it's definitely different. And uh, people who love Doom are it's right up their alley because it is definitely Doom to a capital D. 
Yeah, so, yeah. All songs about wizards and dragons and fucking witches. So if if you like Candlemas or Solitude Eternus or Sleep or Black Sabbath, that's 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 the shit right there. That's your jam. Yep, exactly. <laughs> just getting up on stage and just chilling out. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I play bass in that band, so it's totally different for me. I play bass and do all the vocals, so it's like a completely different thing. Wow, nice. very cool. Well, Matt, before we let you go, because I know your time is valuable and you got plenty of things to keep you busy, what do you want to say for Phil and I in terms of uh, if you had to pick an album for one of us or both of us to review, something that kind of blew our minds out of our ears like Metazoa did when I first encountered it, what would you suggest? Because you threw out some great names. We're both familiar with uh, the bands that you've toured with that you mentioned, Primordial, and we were familiar with Slaufeg, but I've never heard of Judgment Day, and I'm definitely going to check them out. I have heard of Giant Squid. I listen to some of their stuff. What would you think if you know fans that are out there listening that love Metazoa, what would be maybe the one or two albums that you say they should go check out? Well, yeah, I thought about this when you sent it, uh, me the questions, and I think... Um, I'm going to plug a couple albums that are coming out soon. They're not out yet. Okay, um, great. But since, I don't know if you guys know, I, I write for Decibel Magazine. Um, so I have been fortunate to get a bunch of albums ahead of time, which is awesome in a lot of ways because I can, you know, hear new stuff like before a lot of people hear it. And it's a really big privilege for me. So I like to, uh, you know, hype up upcoming releases whenever I can. Um so the first one is uh, actually good friends of ours, a band called Dreadnought from Colorado. Uh, they have a new record coming out in about a week or so, actually. It's called nice. it's called Emergence. Um, okay. It's on Profound Lore Records. Uh, it's spelled D-R-E-A-D-N-O-U-G-H-T, Dreadnought. Uh, okay. This is a fucking fantastic band. They're a quartet four people but they're all multi-instrumentalists so they play all kinds of stuff the lead guitar or the guitar player is uh kelly walsh she also plays flute nice the, the drummer plays saxophone while he's playing drums i've seen it happen <laughs> we've played we've played with them live he'll just be playing a beat on on his hands and he has the saxophone around his neck and he fucking plays the saxophone like I don't know how he does it, but he does God, it. That's awesome. Does he pass out after every show? No, he, he's chilling. Uh, that's awesome, man. Uh, Kevin, the bass player, plays mandolin as well, and then Lauren, the keyboardist, uh, sings and um, you know plays a couple other instruments, I believe. Anyway, uh, they are a fucking great band. Uh, really atmospheric, sort of long form songs, similar to what we do. Uh, maybe like if I had to describe their sound, it's kind of like blackened post metal doom, maybe like a little bit of sub Rosa in there. Uh, they're fucking excellent. And their new record is just like next level stuff. It's really great. Um, so I would recommend that for sure. Uh, and then the second record I would like to recommend is Vale V A L E. Uh, they're an Oakland band. They have a new record called burden of sight coming out pretty soon. And this shit is killer it's really awesome like crusty bay area death metal but like uh, maybe i'll say crusty bay area black metal with like a death metal tinge to it it's like if bolt thrower mixed with like ludicra uh something like that really cool album really blew me away when i heard it actually uh it has justin ennis on drums who plays drums for uh, void omnia and ghoul right now and it, it just a lot of really good Bay Area players on that record. So 
check that one out. It's called uh, Burden of Sight. I think it comes out in three or four weeks. Really oh, yeah. fuck, yeah, really awesome, like riffy, uh, crusty black metal, but like with like really crushing death metal parts. It's it's just a fucking killer album. So yeah, check those two out. Awesome, man. Thank you for the recommendations. Matt, yeah, absolutely, Master Shredder, formerly known <laughs> as Matt. You're the fucking man. This was a great time. You you made yep. me love Cormorant even more, which I didn't think was possible. Yeah, well, thanks, guys. Uh, it was cool finding, you know, I uh, still freak, you know, frequent uh, the, the Cormorant Twitter account every so often, and I noticed that, you know, I'd, I'll do, like, a keyword search, and I just saw you guys had the, the episode up. And I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, <laughs> I definitely wasn't expecting that because it's a – the album is 10 years old, you know, it's like, I would have expected it to be uh, from a newer album or something, but I listened to it and it's great to hear your guys's um, feedback on it and what you took from the record. And, uh, you know, it really makes me feel good that, uh, the music was able to connect with you guys in, in that way. And we, we always love hearing that from people. So, um, yeah, thanks for having me on and, uh, thanks for, for listening to the music. Thank you, man. You are the man, Matt. All right, for everybody out there listening, go to the Bandcamp page, support these guys. Matt is the fucking man. Cormoran is excellent. Check out Ursa, and be sure to check out those new acts that he just mentioned, Vale's new album, Burden of Sight, and Dreadnought Emergence. So, Matt, thank you so much. Phil, as always, you're the man, brother. I look forward to doing this again with you soon, and you can keep checking us out on Twitter, Facebook, and download and subscribe on your podcast listener to the Great Heavy Music Podcast. Until next time, see you guys.